Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. History friends, welcome to this episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. I hope you're doing well. Nothing to see here, just another episode of this massive project and... Well, what do you know? It's actually the last episode. So if you're listening here and you've never listened before, you're going to have no idea what's going on. But maybe you like concluding episodes. and Maybe you don't like listening to hours upon hours of what came before. I'm not going to tell you how to live your life, so go ahead and listen. But if you're curious about what came before, make sure to track down the other 84 episodes. And a huge thanks again must be said to those of you that have supported this podcast on Patreon and basically made it possible for me to do this project in the first place. In case you weren't aware, this thing took a lot of work, and it would not have been possible unless this podcast was my job. Which it is, and which I'm super, super grateful to all of you lovely history friends for supporting this podcast. Without you, I couldn't do it, and I couldn't do stuff into the future as well. It's because of you, because of your support, and your very serious generosity, and your love of history, no doubt as well, that I'm able to do this and also prepare into the future so that I can do things like a PhD in history while still letting this podcast tick away as we cover the Thirty Years' War and Poland is not yet lost from September. Hope you're looking forward to that. If you are, why not tell people about it? Because that is still the best way to help this podcast, and it's absolutely free. Just tell people by word of mouth if they are interested in history, and maybe they'll come and check this show out. Simply put, I couldn't do this without you, and that is why it's so gratifying to be able to reach the end of this series and say, thanks, thanks so much for everything. And, while I am not exactly sure that I'll be covering projects of this size in the future for the sake of all of our sanity, I can guarantee that this podcast will exist into the future because of you, because of your enthusiasm, because of your support. Before I beat a dead horse to death anymore, let's just get into this. A large episode, but not as large as the one which came before. We're winding down the story, guys, and I'm so happy to have been on this journey with all of you. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 85. 
Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to, and I cannot believe I'm saying this, our final episode of the Versailleniversary Project, episode 85. Today, as the name implies, we examine the mess which the Treaty of Versailles created, specifically in Germany, where that mess has become so infamous, and so apparently responsible for everything bad that happened after 1919. This struck me as the best way to end this project, since one of our four aims, which we established in the introduction, was to assess the validity of the argument that Versailles equals World War II. The Weimar Republic has become increasingly interesting to me as this project has gone on, so I hope you'll enjoy this examination of the treaty in its proper context, with the subsequent shaky decade of German democracy laid out for you as well. We're not going to waste any more time, we're just going to get into this very chunky episode, so without any further ado, I'll now take you to the halls of debate as we jump right into this mess. In his 1945 book, examining German propaganda between the world wars, Lindley Fraser does something pretty interesting in the introduction. Fraser sets out in six points the basis of the Nazi interpretation of the First World War, and thus the origins of the Second World War as well. These points were as follows. 1. The German army was in the military sense never beaten in 1918, but was stabbed in the back. 2. Germany was induced to lay down her arms in 1918 by the promise of a peace based on President Wilson's 14 points. This promise was cynically broken by the Allies in the Treaty of Versailles, which utterly ignored the principles which the American president had enunciated. 3. After the armistice, the Allies deliberately maintained the naval blockade, refused to allow foodstuffs to be imported into Germany, and thus were wantonly responsible for untold misery and suffering to German civilians, particularly to children, after the war was supposedly over. 4. By their harsh economic measures against Germany, and particularly by their extortionate demands for reparations, as well as by depriving Germany of vital economic resources in Europe and of her overseas colonies, the Allies were directly responsible for the inflation of the early 20s and the depression of the early 30s. 5. As soon as Hitler came to power, he worked for peace and prosperity and international cooperation. The other great powers in Europe set themselves out to thwart him. They rejected his offers of friendship. They obstructed his efforts to reinstate Germany in her rightful place. They carried out a policy of encirclement and economic strangulation. And therefore, 6. The Second World War was engineered by Germany's enemies and forced upon Germany. And it was, from the German point of view, a just war and a war of self-defence. I think, having examined these six points of Nazi propaganda, it would be fair to say that most serious people do not subscribe to all of them. Few today would argue that Hitler was unjustly attacked in 1939, or that Nazi Germany did not start the Second World War. Even considering this, though, we're still struck by the fact that many people today might see nothing wrong with subscribing to maybe half of these points. Points 2, 3 and 4 are often trotted out in the critiques of the Treaty of Versailles, that Germany was lied to insofar as the 14 points were not delivered, that her people were immorally murdered by the naval blockade which was maintained during the peace negotiations, and that thanks to their reparations policy, the Allies effectively caused the hyperinflation and resulting depression of the 1930s. We have, in fact, encountered these critiques before, as recently as 2008, in his book A Shattered Peace, The Treaty of Versailles and the Price We Pay Today, 
the historian David Andelman makes it plain that he subscribes to these three points. But Andelman is unfortunately far from the only recent historian to cling to these critiques. In 2011, distinguished historians Norman Gravener and Edward Bennett collaborated for a book which claimed to answer the question, why the world required two massive world wars to come to terms with Germany? This was an important question, but one which takes its answer from the most reductionist and simplistic explanations, as the authors conclude in the book. It was the creators of the Versailles Treaty, led by Woodrow Wilson, who saddled the world with the attractive post-war notions regarding international life, as embodied in the promise of collective security. Those suppositions, flowing from the deliberations at Paris, determined the behaviour of nations between 1919 and 1939. That behaviour, marked by the refusal of all the victors at Versailles to assume responsibility for the defence of the treaty, ended with the catastrophe of another world war. What is striking about these claims from such distinguished historians is how strikingly easy they gel with the propaganda of the Nazi party. Now I should state for the record that I despise how modern political discussion or criticism has been so willing to throw the label of Nazi around, and I'm not at all suggesting that these historians were somehow closet Nazis. What I am suggesting is that there is something very wrong indeed with the fact that Nazi propaganda and recent history books share claims in common. This should not be the case, and you may be relieved to note that in the last 40 years, historians have worked their socks off to change the debate, to revise the narrative, to challenge what we know, with cold-hard examination of the facts. Because they have done so, a brief survey of historical works in the last four or even five decades will find that the historical profession has reached a kind of conclusion that the Treaty of Versailles was not all that bad, that the Germans were not handed all that raw of a deal, and that the treaty itself did not lead inexorably to the Second World War. This may seem somewhat surprising. You may even be tempted to think, that's great, Zach. You can rest easy in that case. There's probably no need to even finish this episode. Yet despite the roaring success and renown of some works like Macmillan's The Peacemakers, or my personal favourite, Zara Steiner's The Lights That Failed, a serious problem exists in the public consensus. The lay people of this world, and I use that term as uncondescendingly as possible to simply mean that people not all that interested or clued in on history tend to subscribe to the old view, to the claims that those recent historians put forward, and to those three pillars of Nazi propaganda. The historians might have it right, but everyone outside of that nerdy and well-read bubble still seem to have it very wrong indeed. Despite scholarly opinion, Sally Marks writes, condemnation of the Versailles Treaty continues without cease. That was what this project set out to achieve to change this skewed view of history which is so dominant in the public domain, and at the centre of this skewed view is Germany. It was my hope and my belief that, because podcasts are somewhat more accessible, perhaps this Versailles anniversary project would go some way towards changing the public consensus, where that same public might not be all that tempted to delve into the recent historiography of the Versailles debate. Perhaps the most well-received episode I've released in this project so far was the examination provided of the reparations debate for episode 58. It was there that we established several critically important points designed to challenge the established narrative which historians have themselves been working to challenge for some time. 
As we said, there remains a kind of disconnect between what historians have accomplished and what the general consensus to this day thinks of reparations post-1919. Ironically, as we also established, this disconnect is as much the fault of German propagandists as it is of Allied statesmen who worked to fool their electorates into thinking that Germany was going to give them more money than they actually were. Despite the large price tag of 132 billion gold marks, the divisions of these payments into categories A, B and C told a very different story. The A bonds consisted of the sums which Germans had effectively paid already, while the B bonds were the guts of the total commitment. The C bonds, which on paper appeared enormous, were in reality put forward during the 1921 London Schedule of Payments to fool the uninformed, and they amounted to some 40 billion gold marks. The Allies, as the documentation makes clear, were on no level expectant of the Germans paying this enormous sum, but the voting public, well, they didn't need to know that. While clever and devious in the short run, in the long run these tactics had disastrous consequences. Had the Allies decided to stick with the actual sum of roughly 40 billion gold marks, the actual backlash would not have been so severe, and it is entirely possible that their electorates would have moved on from the debate. Anger towards the Germans, as was expected, had died down dramatically during the two years on from the Paris Peace Conference, especially in Britain. We cannot say how the Germans might have reacted had their contributions been halved, but it was plain during that 1921 meeting that the real figure was the far smaller one. That figure of 132 billion which the public saw, in addition, was to be paid by the Central Powers, not just the Germans, but of course the Germans would be required to pay the bulk of it. Don't forget that during the negotiations in 1919, figures of varying size had been thrown around, and in the German counter-proposals, a figure of 120 billion gold marks was established by the German negotiators as the maximum that Germans would be able to pay. Understandably, wrote Sally Marx, most students of 20th century history have preferred to sidestep the perils of travel on territory of extreme financial complexity, and as a consequence, a number of misconceptions about the history of German reparations remain in circulation. And this leads us neatly to the Wargilt Clause debacle. If the Germans were able to harness the outrage surrounding the reparations debate for their own propaganda ends, in even the years immediately following Versailles, then the Wargilt Clause can be said to have taken on a life of its own. This idea of war guilt is based on a fundamental lie, however, which, as we learned, has grown and grown since the Treaty of Versailles has been signed. There remains a belief, prevalent today among the public, that the war guilt clause blamed Germans for the ignition of the war, and that the injustice of this claim caused outcry. In fact, the reason why reparations and war guilt must be lumped together is because the two issues were inseparable to the Allies ideologically and logically. Article 231, where that infamous clause was supposedly enshrined, was in fact written up not to establish German war guilt, since war guilt was not even mentioned. Instead, it was written to establish German responsibility for the payment of reparations. By virtue of the damage they had caused, the article said, Germany is responsible for paying reparations to relieve said damage. That was all it was written up for. It was not designed to blame Germans for starting the war, but to establish the legal basis for reparations. Indeed, this was a necessary protocol, and as we learned, the Allies determined from an early stage that this same article would be included in the peace treaties for the other members of the Central Powers camp, Austria, Hungary and Bulgaria. 
In the post-war literature bemoaning the peace which did the rounds in those states, war guilt was not the issue for them. So why the pity party in Germany about the unfairness of the article? Did the Germans not in fact start the war? While I do take issue with the idea that Germany masterminded this vision of aggressive world conquest starting in Europe, according to the technical requirements, Germany did begin the Great War. Did Germany then lose this war? Yes, in spite of subsequent claims, she was defeated. Thus, for any other power that begins and then loses a war, there must be consequences. That's a fundamental fact of how states deal with one another, and Germany should not have been allowed or should not have been allowed to feel that they were excluded from this law. After demolishing the reparations and war guilt myths, then, we're moved to turn our attention to this idea of consequences. If we strip back the Great War and examine the behaviour of the Germans from beginning to end, we can deduce that Germany started the war and that she lost it. In any other century following any other conflict, the instigator and loser of a conflict would be expected to pay. Indeed, German admission that she had wronged the Belgians was easy to come by as the German delegates prepared to move to Paris. Recorded conversations of the German delegates made it plain that they expected to have to compensate Belgium for her losses. The problem was that the expectations of penalties stopped there in the German mind. After time, in fact, even that limited idea of consequence was written out of the history. Again, we are drawn to Sally Marx's powerful statement to the effect that After a long, bitter Great War, losers are rarely treated as victors. Germany's military collapse has been downplayed. Last battles count most, and Berlin sought an armistice in hope of regrouping to fight again only when its army neared disintegration. The armistice of November 1918 was in fact a surrender, but the Allies, without thinking, retained the German term, implying only a ceasefire. That was the first Allied mistake. The text required a rapid military withdrawal that only the German army could accomplish, which gave it great influence in the nascent German Republic. The Franco-Belgian yearning for liberation rendered that requirement hard to avoid. And other Allied failures must be underlined, though these failures on the Allied side can only be considered failures because they neglected to counteract the German deceit. For instance, take the stabbed-in-the-back myth, which followed from the lie that the German army had not actually been defeated, and that only pacifists, socialists, and, sure, let's just throw the Jews in there together as well, that they had made the armistice happen. If, Lindley Fraser writes, the Allies had taken the trouble to find out why, as early as 1919 or 1920, the view was spreading among wide sections of the German people that Germany was not defeated in the First World War, then, Fraser's continuing here, they might have grasped at a much earlier moment the real significance of the rise of National Socialism and perhaps the Second World War might have been prevented. The reality of the defeat, in other words, was not impressed upon the Germans strongly enough, even though those in the German high command appreciated its extent well enough to comment on the series of disasters which followed the first Allied counterattacks in mid-July 1918, once the German spring offensives had run out of steam. We should remember that while the Weimar Republic's representatives signed the Treaty of Versailles, it was the military that persuaded the civilian government to ask for the armistice, Without the tacit acceptance of the situation by the military in the autumn of 1918, the civilian government could never have acted and the Kaiser would never have been so spooked as to flee to Holland. 
Ironically, it was while declaring, I want to save my army, that the duo of Hindenburg and Ludendorff insisted upon an armistice. The fear that the German army might be comprehensively and systematically defeated with the invasion of Germany in the new year of 1919 was a real one. So to preserve the army's honour as much as because the strategic situation was impossible and worsening, the duo insisted upon overtures in late September. Thereafter, it became convenient for the duo to forget that they had done this. Hindenburg, later to serve as president, was adamant after the event that the the stabbed-in-the-back myth rang true, even though he was living proof of its very falseness. This crime on Hindenburg's part has been mostly forgotten, and the contribution those men made to the latter catastrophes mostly glossed over. It may appear unimportant on some level, but imagine the damage to the propaganda had Hindenburg and his presidential office actually told the truth and rallied against the lie, thereby informing the German people. Such a policy required courage, though, and Hindenburg was unfortunately lacking in that department in the post-war years, even while he was in possession of a great ambition which took him to the presidency in 1926. The suddenness of the defeat to the German people must also be taken into consideration. The Allies did not properly consider the impact of its suddenness, as they turned their attention after the 11th of November to planning for the conference, rather than making Germany feel any kind of pain. Only a sliver of the Rhineland was actually occupied, so few Germans actually saw the enemy or felt the proof of the defeat was in their lives. That visual proof had been so effective, and it had seen the Prussians, for instance, march past the Arc de Triomphe in 1871. But rather than help the Germans cope with their defeat, instead the Germans were just left to their own devices, while the grandstanding began in the Allied camp. As vague statements, great expectations and warm greetings were exchanged between the Allies, the Germans clung to their returning armies, which had been saved the ultimate crushing they had delivered to France in 1871, or would receive themselves in 1945. An important asterisk is of course the note that an army does not need to be ultimately crushed in order to be defeated. The stabbed in the back myth is not valid because the German army might have limped on for another six months as all of Germany collapsed around her. The civilian government had been moved to decide that enough was enough and after the duo had informed them of the reality of the situation, they moved earnestly to end the war as soon as possible. Pursuing the American option above all, Germans tricked themselves into believing that the American president would be more lenient than his allied counterparts, neglecting to take into consideration Wilson's pressures or the impossibility of letting Germany off scot-free. By failing to counter the stabbed-in-the-back myth, or really to consider Germany very much at all until the first week of May 1919, the Allies enabled German writers, thinkers, politicians and civilians to write their own history, and it was only at the tail end of the six-month process of self-delusion that the Allies then intervened with their shattering treaty. Had they prepared Germans for Versailles from the beginning, the subsequent uproar might not have been so severe. But again, responsibility for this self-deception must rest on the German shoulders more so than the Allied, for the German leaders knew that they were beaten, even if it became fashionable to later ignore it. In two other points then, Poland and the Rhine, the Allies came under additional fire for imposing upon Germany an unfair settlement. 
I want to address both these points in turn, but if you want a more detailed examination, see episode 57, where we tackle Danzig and the Rhine together. Let's begin with the Rhine now, though. What was the Rhineland settlement, and why did it cause so much outrage in later years? At the core of the outrage was the belief that the 15-year occupation of the Rhineland was morally wrong, and this belief was buoyed by the complete misunderstanding of the French desire for it, and the criticism which the French came under, by the British in particular, We will remember that Clemenceau possessed two major goals, a settlement of the Rhineland question and the maintenance of the wartime alliance which would preserve French security into the future. While it may seem as though he had the latter in his grasp, Clemenceau was then treated to a fortnight of representations from Lloyd George in early June, who claimed that France didn't really need the Rhine, that the British public did not really understand the occupation or that the wartime alliance would protect France far more effectively. Clemenceau, as we learned, was wise to these arguments and correctly saw the promise to maintain the three-way guarantee as shaky until Congress or Parliament approved of it, and neither ever really did. Had Clemenceau listened to Lloyd George, in other words, French security would have been desperately imperiled from the beginning. The spectre of German soldiers pouring over the Rhine crossings into France was not very well understood in Britain and Lloyd George never seems to have fully grasped how deep the wounds inflicted by 1871 actually went. But that's the ideological. What about the strategic arguments for French and Allied occupation of the Rhineland? Well, simply put, Clemenceau believed that without such an occupation, France could not be guaranteed the delivery of reparations which the Germans would promise between 1919-21. This belief was accompanied by the more general one, that without some kind of pressure or threat of action, the Germans would simply repudiate, one by one, the Articles of the Treaty of Versailles. The hypocrisy of the German outcry at the occupation of her territory was palpable, especially as we consider how German policy had been implemented in 1871 to coerce the French into paying the 5 billion francs they owed for their indemnity to a newly unified Germany. This hypocrisy is underlined by two figures who were present during the Allied military missions to Germany and who later wrote an account of the growing threat Germany posed in the interwar years. In 1946, Brigadier General J.H. Morgan and Lieutenant General Sir G.M.W. Macdonough put pen to paper for their book A Size of Arms, bringing with them more than three decades of experience in the era. Their critique of the German attitude, particularly in the early 1920s, is especially revealing because it demonstrates that, while sympathy for Germany and Britain was growing, many had still not forgotten the lessons which had been learned. Morgan and McDonough wrote, The facts that the Germans had themselves occupied the fairest provinces of France for three years after the Franco-Prussian War, until France paid the uttermost farthing of reparations, did not of course deter them. They had no intention of ever paying reparations, and, as all the world now knows, they eventually secured the evacuation of the Rhineland by tendering a promissory note, known and now notorious as the Pact of Locarno, and then dishonoured their note by repudiating reparations altogether. All that was to come. This hypocrisy was noted further when the authors recalled coming across old editions of books written during wartime where the German author gloated about the starving out of England by submarines. Clemenceau, for his part, could have recalled the siege of Paris, where the people of the city died in their thousands from starvation, but Bismarck refused any delivery of food 
until the French government had surrendered. The authors do not claim that no Germans died of starvation in this book, but they do rally against the suggestion that millions of Germans were killed by the policy, or that it was all the fault of the Allies. Such a policy was a fact of war, and had been practiced by the Germans only a few months before. The problem, so said the authors, was that British observers had more sympathy to spare for the suffering German, and the German propagandist made full use of these emotions. The Allies, for their part, remained clunky and plodding in their modification of the blockade, or in the British government's actual understanding of its political ramifications. We do not need to make a judgement on the righteousness of the Allied blockade here. What we do need to do is place the policy in the context of post-war Europe. We need to remember that nations have blockaded other nations for millennia, and that the Germans had been trying to do exactly the same thing to the Allies for much of the war, and that during wartime, which included the peace conference, punitive measures were sometimes necessary. A huge problem with any critique of the Allied policies during the first half of 1919 is that they must be made in the context of a war which was only on temporary hold. We rarely see criticism of Britain's wartime blockade. The problem is that in many people's minds, the war ended in November 1918. This is in fact inaccurate and disingenuous. The Treaty of Versailles ended the war with Germany, but until that moment in late June, it was impossible to reduce the pressure. Nobody could have known what the future held, or what, if the British removed their blockade, the Germans might have done during the peace negotiations. In a sense, the British blockade became like the French Rhineland, a PR disaster which subsequent governments defended reluctantly and never particularly well. So it was that in 1923, when French fears were vindicated and the Germans refrained from fulfilling their end of the bargain by cutting off repayments, the temperature increased steadily following an occupation of the Ruhr. The occupation became immensely unpopular, especially in Allied circles. Statesmen worked to disassociate themselves from it, and one author, writing in summer 1923, even felt compelled to begin his art. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Article examining the possibilities for a revision of the Treaty of Versailles by writing first. Let me make perfectly clear at the start that it is not my intention to attempt any explanation of, or apology for, the French advance into the Ruhr. The occupation of the Ruhr soured Anglo-French relations, but it was not, contrary to the misinterpretations of French behaviour at the time, 
an instance of French aggression towards the weakened Germany. Subsequent German propagandists would paint it as such, of course. Instead, it was the last gasp of Premier Poincaré's government to try and cling to some trace of the Treaty of Versailles. By defaulting on their reparations payments, over and over again and without sufficient explanation, by the way, it seemed plain in Paris that the Germans were chancing their arm. To drive the point home and compel adherence to the treaty's terms, the French government felt it had no choice other than to act dramatically by conducting a policy that the Weimar government was sure to understand. By this point, don't forget, the French had tried everything else, and if they let the Germans off, then what would be the point in the treaty's other elements? Would Germany ignore those too? One could criticise the French policy as desperate and illogical. Germany plainly did not possess the same economic opportunities as the French did post-1871, where that government was able to raise loans to repay those 5 billion francs to Berlin in record time. The reason for this was that the international lending community had zero faith in Germany's ability to repay such debts that it might incur in the early 1920s. So, because of this, German debts piled up as she worked to repair herself in the post-war era. Hyperinflation followed, and all the while, the mean French battered down the door, warning that Fat Tony would come along and collect if they didn't pay the piper soon. And this was a threat that they fulfilled in January 1923, when Franco-Belgian troops marched into one of the most productive parts of the German country. Yet, while this narrative fits conveniently with the woe-is-me narrative of the Germans, it fails to address the key problem in the German psyche, which was far more important than any apparent lack of funds. It wasn't a lack of funds that moved the French to intervene, but a plain lack of desire on the part of the Germans to pay what they owed. Whereas the French saw the payment of the 5 billion francs as a badge of national honour in the early 1870s, the Germans saw the reparations as inherently unfair and dishonourable, and subsequent German ministries dragged their feet incessantly on the issue. This dragging was as much a result of German belief in the injustice of the demand as it was to the simple German reluctance to pay. It should also be said that paying would have compelled the German government to raise taxes, reduce spending and bring in all sorts of other unpopular practices to counterbalance the expenditure. A right-wing opposition party could accuse the government of fleecing German citizens with high taxes in order to pay the Allied debts. This would have been political dynamite but unfortunately representative of the argument which so many German statesmen feared. Rather than court political disaster at home then, it was safer to default repeatedly and to recast reparations as just another unfair demand which those darned allies continued to lord over Germany. The results of this recasting were disastrous of course, but for France as much as for Germany, since it painted France as something akin to a bad guy in the 1920s. Shaky French administrations and the cooling in the Anglo-French relations did little to alleviate these impressions, and once again, Germany was granted a great propaganda victory. It cannot be known exactly how much Germany could have paid had she wanted to, but it is certain, absolutely certain, that her statesmen did not want to pay, and according to the Justice and Law of Peace Treaties, she should have been more willing to pay what she owed. What else did Germany owe, then, other than the timely delivery of money and resources to the victors? It is sometimes glossed over that Germany owed land as well, largely because the act of taking land from Germany and giving it over to her new neighbours to the east quickly became the most controversial of all the Allied decisions. In the interwar years, rather than reparations, don't forget, 
It was a seizure of territory from Germany, and most painfully that territory which was given to Poland, which cut the deepest for the German citizen. This problem is a really difficult one though, because there was virtually no question of the German people ever accepting Poland as an independent state, so long as the Poles demanded lands formerly ruled by Germans. And yet, this is where we get a bit philosophical, because in spite of what David Lloyd George or Jan Smuts might have loudly proclaimed, according to all justifiable measures of national identity, of history and of culture, these regions did have a claim to being Polish rather than German. The Germans were never going to accept such a limitation of their borders, and yet to realise the promise of Poland, these limitations were inherently necessary. No aspect of the Versailles Treaty, wrote the historian Darwin Bostwick, did more to alienate the German public opinion and embitter European international relations after 1919 than the German-Polish boundary settlement, nor was any other major treaty provision less susceptible to peaceful change, either by negotiation or unilateral action, as Hitler proved later, than the Polish boundary settlement. We are caught in a kind of trap, then. If Germans were never going to accept Polish independence, and if Polish statehood demanded those portions of formerly German Empire land, then was conflict always inevitable, thanks to this border settlement, and therefore thanks to the Treaty of Versailles, which housed that settlement? As Darwin Bostwick noted in his article, we need to consider the red lines of the German camp in particular. Rather than accepting the German position as it was, we should be more willing to criticise it, and reason that German statesmen ought to have been more in tune with reality. Rather than accepting the German defeat and what defeat meant, however, figures like Ulrich von Brockdorf-Ranzau loudly derided any settlement which would take any land away from Germany. These loud proclamations from Germany's leading delegate, at least before he resigned, greatly affected expectations within Germany itself, and when he met with Germany's cabinet in late March 1919, the unreal expectations continued to be fanned. Focusing in on the 13th of the 14 points, and the phrase, undisputably Polish territory, Ulrich von Brockdorf-Ranzau painted a pleasing picture for Germany, whereby only the absolute core of old Poland would be restored. Brockdorf-Ranzau considered that plebiscites would be held in regions like Posen, which were clearly Polish in majority, and that Germans who had lived there for at least a year would be allowed to vote. Danzig would never be given away, Upper Silesia would not even be considered, and concessions might be made by sharing railways or ports if the Allies pushed the issue. In this late March meeting, as Darwin Bostwick said, German leaders demonstrated an appalling ignorance of Germany's true position, and they talked of German demands as if the central powers were the victors and not the vanquished, wasting much of the meeting in futile discussions of Alsace-Lorraine. Furthermore, as Bostwick adds, in the month following, German statesmen continued to harbour unrealistic expectations, despite reports that a draft treaty, being prepared, would require the cession of most of Posen to Poland without a plebiscite. Danzig might be internationalised and tied to Poland by a corridor through West Prussia, and part of Upper Silesia might go to Poland. Despite these warnings, the German Foreign Office drew up detailed instructions for the peace delegation, still based on Brockdorf-Ranzau's earlier statement to the German cabinet. Thus, we witness again the impossibly positive German expectations, which appear to us akin to a policy of denial. 
How could the Germans, having lost the war, believe that they could retain so many trump cards or wield such influence at the peace table? How could they ignore all evidence to the contrary and all evidence which even a basic understanding of the fundamentals of peacemaking would reveal? The fact was that a power which lost the war did not get to make demands. Yet as Bostwick discerned, in spring 1919, the Germans seemed to be behaving as though nothing had in fact been lost behaviour which ties into our earlier examination of that belief, which claimed Germany had not militarily lost the war, she'd only been induced to sign an armistice for the sake of those generous peace terms enshrined in the 14 points. And yet even within those 14 points, if we take the German view as literal, the Germans believed they could pick and choose. The 13th point, promising Polish access to the sea, could be compromised, the Germans believed, by some throwaway concessions, and Poland would be kept small and insignificant. Her statesmen would refrain from accepting Polish statehood as a fact of international law, and apparently they would also ignore the crime of partition, which had been universally condemned by the Allies by this point. The Germans wanted to take some points of the 14 points and ignore others. They wanted to have their 14 points cake and eat it. But worse than that, the likes of Ulrich von Brockdorf Ransau wanted to reduce the responsibility of Germany to right the wrongs of its past by handing over land which was Polish by all measure of that definition. Brockdorf Ransau's role in fostering the mistaken belief in the gentle treatment of Germany on the Polish question has been largely forgotten though. Instead, focuses generally turned to the status of Danzig as a kind of symbol of interwar hopes which were ultimately dashed. Yet, does this incident not also say something about how insecure and self-deluding the Germans had become in their negotiations? Like the case with the actual Treaty of Versailles itself, the Germans seem to have expected with regards to Poland that they would not have to make any sacrifices. Thus, when these sacrifices were made, Germany was not prepared, even though she really should have been. Had more honesty and integrity been in supply in spring 1919, then the continued deluding of the German delegates would not have been allowed to continue and statesmen and citizen alike would have been ready for the creation of a new nation-state in the heart of Europe, which their ancestors had played no small role in destroying a century before. When revising history like this, it can sometimes be tempting to argue or criticise when true alternatives were not really there. What's the alternative, though? Do we accept that the recreation of Poland was always bound to lead to World War II, or do we question that claim? and reason that German statesmen should have done better under the circumstances. Indeed, one could argue that a general theme of German statesmen during the peace conference was, should have done better. While it is easy in some respects to feel sorry for them, as the scales were ripped from their eyes, the laws of history dictated that those scales should never have been there in the first place. The picture they had of the 14 points was akin to a get-out-of-jail-free card, and this was profoundly disingenuous, and nothing like what Woodrow Wilson had ever intended. It had been made clear from the beginning with the armistice negotiations that mercy and justice meant very different things to both sides, but that the Allied conception of these terms would win out, because the Allies had the preponderance of power which the Germans certainly lacked. Ultimately then, we can say that the Germans were deluded and disingenuous regarding their weaknesses, weaknesses in military strength, in political capital, and in bargaining power. What they lacked in these essential ingredients for quality diplomatic negotiations, they made up for in dishonesty and the perpetuation of falsehoods thereafter through propaganda. 
This all might seem a bit harsh from my side, but it is far too easy to blame the Allies in this narrative without considering the German responsibility for what followed. It is too much of a cop-out to proclaim that since the Germans were incapable of acting any better, the Allies should not have delivered the Treaty of Versailles in the first place. The Germans should have realised then, and all should accept now, that the natural order of states when losing a war is to pay the penalty. Germany as the loser of the Great War was required to pay its way, but rather than face the music, she changed her tune, preferring an irresponsible dereliction of her duty to the dishonour of defeat. Faced with such a challenge, the Allies went some way towards accommodating Germany, arguably further than they should have gone. But on the Allied ledger of responsibility, we can denote that they should have been more active and loud in their interactions with the Germans, from the armistice to the signing of the peace. Since military invasion of Germany was impossible, at least in the Allied minds in the beginning, the alternative was to make it abundantly clear that Germany had been defeated during the war, and that she should expect the victors to inflict their peace upon her. The failure of the victors, wrote Sally Marx, to bring defeat home to the German people was at least as important as anything in the Versailles Treaty in generating the bitter resentment and determination to destroy the treaty that marked the Weimar Republic. So can a critique of the Versailles Settlement and the cause and effect leading to World War II boil down to the idea that the Allies were not clear enough and the Germans were not supplicant enough? Sort of, but of course there is more to the story than that. I have to emphasise something which we visited in our July Crisis Anniversary Project, that painting straightforward cause and effect formulas in a time like this is inaccurate and in this case irresponsible. Blaming Versailles for the Second World War is, like we said before, like blaming the Russian Civil War for the vile murderous policies of Joseph Stalin. The ingredients which we leave out in between point A and point B constitute the actual human element of the story, and with Versailles, it is the human elements that matter so much. Included within the human aspect of the story of the Treaty of Versailles are, of course, the German humans, the German people. To get to the bottom of what happened in Germany to make Nazi Germany possible, it is the German people that must come under our microscope, and this is a task far outside the capabilities of a single episode of this project. The reason why I emphasise the German people is because it is critically important in this study of history not to blame events for the errors and sins of people. The terms of the Treaty of Versailles do not excuse the Germans from going with the Nazis, but in the same vein, if we spend all our attention on the 440 articles in an attempt to gauge where World War II came from, then we neglect the people, the literal Nazis and their supporters, who made that regime possible. In addition, by focusing heavily on Versailles and ignoring the human actors, we run the risk of ignoring those warning signs which might prevent us from stopping this terror from happening again. The question of why Nazi Germany happened is again too broad a question for us to cover properly here, but suffice to say, it is hardly sufficient to simply point to the Treaty of Versailles and leave it at that. It should go without saying that to present the treaty as equaling Hitler does a tremendous disservice to the historical record and to the people who worked honourably to make the world a better place. These people failed in their efforts to stop the Nazis, like the Allies failed with the Treaty of Versailles to stop another war. Rather than blame these people who failed, though, we need to be more willing to blame those figures who succeeded, 
and by that I mean to blame those Germans who successfully altered the accepted truth of the debate, or who successfully capitalised upon the increasingly prevalent impression in the 1920s that the Treaty of Versailles was unfair. Popularised by a great literary success, John Maynard Keynes's Economic Consequences of the Peace. Taken as gospel thereafter, Keynes's book was a flawed though well-meaning attempt to make sense of what had happened during the peace conference, but its impact upon the debate was so overwhelming as to be almost suffocating. To disagree with Keynes thereafter was to court derision, and it was the most stunningly successful work on the peace in the English language to subsequently bleed over onto the French, Italian and of course German languages. Having been fed the narrative of an unfair peace, this tract could only have reinforced the German belief that the Versailles Treaty had been an act of rank injustice from the offing. This belief has shielded the whole event from the kind of analysis and revelations which such a significant period of time deserves. Yet, thanks to what I hate to call, but I will call the mainstream version of history, to many people, the whole debate on Versailles appears like a closed case. Thanks to that reinforced impression, historians have been arguing uphill ever since, as Keynes's ghost remains omnipresent in the public subconscious. To even mention the Treaty of Versailles today is to arouse grunts or expressions of disgust, or perhaps a wince. You can even find a few memes out there that, while pretty hilarious, one of my favourite in fact is that one where it says, if you get tagged in this meme then you owe your friend 132 billion gold marks, all these parts of Poland, etc, etc. It's a good meme, but it shows the problem that people are facing when they try to argue against this misconception. And the reason why this misconception exists is because people know, or they think they know at least, that the Treaty of Versailles is inherently bad, or they read those two lines in a history book which condemned it as such when they were a teenager, and that simplistic cause and effect stuck with them, precisely because it was so simplistic. I remember it specifically saying so in my textbook, the narrative that the First World War led unavoidably to the Second, and that the Treaty of Versailles paved the way towards that Second War, was really a hard thing to avoid. And I'd wager the textbooks haven't changed all that much since I was in school a decade ago. The subsequent behaviour of the Germans and their ability to harness the anger surrounding Versailles seem to provide the evidence for that treaty's inherent unfairness. France is cast not as the wronged party desperate to avoid a repeat in 1919 and effectively saying, I told you so in 1939, but as the party most responsible for the treaty's imbalances and therefore for the war which followed. As we noted in our introduction episodes, this can sometimes come accompanied by a belief that France somehow deserved what befell it in 1940 and that her collapse was comeuppance for trying to force injustice on a battered foe. As historians, we're not merely arguing for the use of truth, but also against a simple message that one error leads to a later catastrophe. History, Leo Tolstoy says, would be a wonderful thing if only it were true, and to apply that famous quote to the equally infamous treaty seems only right under the circumstances. As historians, we must justify our profession by considering the facts, the events, and the people that made the vilest crimes of the 20th century possible. We must not shy away from the debate, or reduce it to a formula which is easily digestible for the sake of being popular. This means not placing all the responsibility for World War II on Versailles' shoulders, but examining each of the elements which constituted that treaty, 
the good and the bad, and tempering our examination beforehand with a note of caution. You see, history does not contain simple formulas. It very rarely contains straightforward messages. Instead, it contains people. Since people are by definition messy, so too are the things that they have left us. It's up to us not to accept the mess as it is necessarily, but to delve into this mess, get knee-deep in it, and do our utmost to rationalise it, however difficult, controversial, or complicated the end result might be. The end result, let's be fair, is far less catchy. It isn't something that can be explained in a single breath. The answer to what gave rise to the Nazi party and helped cause World War II can't be the Treaty of Versailles, as it sometimes is. Instead, the answer has to be a long sigh, followed by several minutes of explanation. It is far less glamorous to do this latter answer, but it is also far more accurate, and to sadists like myself, the truth is also far more interesting, because it moves us to examine other truths. Okay, you think, so the Treaty of Versailles did not equal World War II, it only paved the way for the Weimar Republic. So what role did the Weimar Republic play in helping to bring about the Second World War? In my view, this is a more appropriate question, because it returns the responsibility for Nazi Germany to the German people, and in the course of answering that question, we're presented with some fascinating revelations too. The Weimar Republic was doomed to suffer because it held on to the lie of a non-defeat, It retained statesmen who maintained that Germany had been betrayed rather than beaten, and these statesmen were comforted in their views by unstable institutions, such as the German officer corps, who resented the Weimar Republic for restricting the size of the German army, and began a swing towards the hard right in response. This swing to the right was echoed in the judiciary, which refrained from punishing German nationalists who engaged in criminal activity in the 1920s, such as the murder of politicians or the launching of putsches, of which there were many in the interwar period, all based on the justification that a judge of Germany could not punish a citizen of Germany for patriotism. And then there was the president, elected directly by universal suffrage and in possession of sweeping powers thanks to the Weimar Constitution. When Hindenburg, a man with no love whatsoever for the Republic, assumed that office in 1926, it meant curtains for the kind of moderate presidential approach of Friedrich Ebert. This is not designed to serve as any kind of final word on the Weimar Republic's role in facilitating the Second World War, but it should demonstrate that explanations reside here, as much as in the resentment caused by the Treaty of Versailles, for what happened next. Those that argue for the simple version of history ignore all of this rich history, from the role of the president to the Wall Street crash of 1929, which caused an economic collapse and depression in Germany and across the world, unrivaled until 2008. To put another more modern spin on things, do any political scientists or historians worth their salt attempt to argue that the 1993 Treaty of Maastricht, which established the European Union, caused Brexit 23 years later? Of course not, and yet while the circumstances in both cases were worlds apart, The principle is the same. You can't blame a treaty for the actions of independently-minded people that took this action 20 years later. And that must be the ultimate verdict upon Germany. She was not shackled to a course of history which the Treaty of Versailles set in motion. She was ruled and populated by people of their own free will, 
who veered towards the extreme in an age of extremes, and who refrained from telling the truth or accepting that truth because resistance and ignorance seemed better alternatives. It is very hard indeed not to resent these German figures for acting in such a way. It is hard not to wish that Ulrich von Brockdorf Ranzau had been more moderate and realistic, that Hindenburg had been upfront about the military situation rather than perpetuating the stabbed-in-the-back mythos, or that the German people had managed to offer up some capable statesman that could have absorbed the temporary pain of accepting the treaty in return for generations of peace. What, after all, was the alternative for Germany? To accept this new status quo, or to launch a bid for the domination of the continent once more? How worthwhile was this latter endeavour, and how many people would have to die in order to achieve it? Was peace and prosperity not worth more, especially after all the carnage which had been seen? Not even the German people could agree about what the future held for Germany. In fact, the best that can be said is that they agreed to disagree. Several putsches followed in the 1920s, including the more famous Beer Hall Putsch in Munich in 1924. It was then, having been given a lenient sentence by a sympathetic judiciary, that Adolf Hitler made his name with Erich von Ludendorff by his side. Within a decade, he would have destroyed the institutions of the Weimar Republic, making use of those same institutions in order to achieve this destruction. Upon his banners could be found the insult of the Treaty of Versailles, but just as important for Hitler was the actual dishonour of the military defeat which the Great War had been, and which had actually moved him to weep at the time. The defeat, the loss of land to inferior peoples in the East, and the dream to realise Germany's racial supremacy, all moved Hitler towards engineering a second war. To justify his crimes, the Treaty of Versailles was brought up now and again to grant some legitimacy. The Rhineland could rejoin Germany because the 15-year time had run out. The Ruhr would be remilitarized, since this was necessary for a functioning economy. Austria should join with Germany, since it was unnatural to keep Germanic peoples apart when they so wished to be together. Sedaten Germans must be joined with the Reich also, since this was in line with self-determination and was only just. Whenever Hitler acted in these early successes, reference to the Treaty of Versailles was sprinkled in for good measure, and the battering of that treaty's reputation continued to the very end when it no longer ceased to apply, and Hitler went too far. By the time he was attempting to use the Treaty of Versailles to rectify the injustice of Danzig, the Anglo-French had gotten wise to the act, and were no longer willing to accept the easily digestible narrative that the Treaty of Versailles made Hitler do it, or that the Treaty of Versailles was to blame. As they were entwined with their love-hate relationship with the Treaty of Versailles, it took far too long for the scales to fall from the Allied eyes then, just as today, when it has taken far too long for the whole picture of the Treaty of Versailles to be widely accepted. While the Treaty of Versailles left at the feet of the Germans a great big mess, considering the five years which had preceded it, beginning with the assassination of Franz Ferdinand on the 28th of June 1914, is it any wonder that the most destructive war in human history to that point should leave such a mess behind? Considering how chaotic, untidy and shoddy the march to war had been, considering how bloody, how horrendous and how steep the learning curve had been during the conflict, is it any wonder that the treaty which brought that conflict to an end should be similarly contentious and flawed? For at no point would I argue that the Treaty of Versailles was perfect, but not even an imperfect treaty is just cause for what Germany later did. Nothing, indeed, I need to say this very carefully, 
Nothing can excuse those crimes which followed, and nothing could have caused them other than the poisonous ideology to which the German people proved unfortunately susceptible to. So yes, a century ago, the Germans will be poring over the treaty that they had just signed, and shaking their metaphorical or perhaps their literal fists at the Allies, in condemnation for the mess which that treaty had created for Germany. But this wasn't good enough. It was a mess which Germans had played no small role in creating, and it was a mess which Germans would now have to take responsibility for. Just like their ancestors before them, they had played the game, and they had lost, and now it was time to pay. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.